When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm Winsler Powers. I'm joined as always by my co-host Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing buddy? I am doing so good. This was a topic I wanted to talk about for quite a while and we had an amazing guest here, Robbie Slowick. You may have seen him on Conan or The Problem with Jon Stewart where he's a writer. He is absolutely fantastic on Twitter, Instagram, at Robbie Slowick. And he wanted to talk about the news, which is absolutely fascinating history. One, again, I wanted to go into for quite a while. And him writing the news with John, John Stewart is perfect. Yeah, I was about to say, what a perfect combination of topic and guest. Yeah, it was really incredible. And he was so smart, had so much information on this. It was great to talk about. Yeah, this was a really fun one. We actually ran a little bit long, so I think we should just go ahead and hop into it. Let's get into it. Let's go. Robbie Slowick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. I got to meet you when you did Cabin Fever with me, the Zoom stand-up, which I know we're moving away from, and then I assume pretty soon. And you've been killing it since then. You're writing on The Problem with Jon Stewart now. Yes, yes. I got lucky. I got through that packet process, and it's been a blast. I, this is my second time working with John. I worked with John on his last project, the one right after The Daily Show. I was there for a year, and that one never came out. So, Oh, yeah, the animated news show, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an absolute nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so it's super redeeming to be working on this one. That is so cool. It's one of our favorites. John Stewart, I feel like, is every comedian's favorite <laughs> to begin with. And the new show's been going great. He's the best. It's like, I don't even know if the shows do justice to just how like funny and smart and, and thoughtful he is. He's really great to work with. And just like, I don't know, I think sometimes people think of him as like this news guy or whatever, but he is just so like pound for pound, just one of the funniest people in the world. Oh, yeah. Because I mean, if you watch your daily show, like back from the beginning, before it got into such serious news. You see how talented it is and then like how ridiculously smart he is to be able to tie it all together and make it like news and funny. Exactly. Yeah. He's just got a gift for it. He's like, uh, you know, there's obviously so many people doing it now, but there's just something about the way John does it that just like resonates more and connects more. And a lot of people seem to think that's it's my writing that is the difference maker. Is what <laughs> people are saying. It's what every review is mentioned. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm, I'm mentioned heavily in all of the reviews. Most of the reviews <laughs> that now say, now that I'm writing for him, most of the reviews that now say, is Jon Stewart still funny? <laughs> It was making me think with just because you mentioned how everyone kind of has the topical news show right now, but they all come from like his like coaching tree. He's like the Nick Saban of political comedy where everyone's just like, let's just get one of his assistants in here and see if they can do better over here. And nobody adds up as well as when you have like that head guy. <laughs> That's totally true. I think like John Oliver might be the closest of them. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, he's got such a great voice for it, too, with his own take. So it feels unique, but you can also see that influence of like, oh, yeah, he clearly learned from John. Yes. 
Totally. And which was perfect for the topic today because you wanted to talk about news. Yes. Which has a fantastic history we'll get into soon. But so, yeah, what's that process currently like writing comedy news with the amount of news that's out there right now? So the last job I worked on with John, that was like daily, you know, not like the Daily Show, but it was responding to news of the day. And that was it's kind of a nightmare because then you have to ingest all of it. You kind of have to ingest the worst of it in that. You're playing in that 24-hour news network space. So it's MSNBC and Fox and CNN. And it's not really like the news you're reacting to as much as like how badly the news is disseminated to audiences. So you're kind of stuck in that world. Right now, the new show, The Problem with Jon Stewart, that is more issue-driven. And we take one topic and do a deep dive throughout the whole episode. So we don't have to like really rely on like CNN and and Fox News where we can really like go to journalism and and we have like Zoom calls with experts and we really like deep dive on these topics. So it's a way just like healthier life. Yeah, because you get to speak to experts. Yes, exactly. People who actually like know this stuff rather than going in and like watching Don Lemon argue with some state rep somewhere who's trying to pass a law that's like the death sentence for abortion or whatever. So yeah, I was reading something not too long ago about the people that have the job monitoring social media message boards and the like for content that needs to be taken down and the emotional toll that it took on them to just have to read all of this to find anything that was inappropriate. Also, some of them went the other way. Some of them ended up being swayed by it and and became extreme, which I mean, it feels very much like, all right, either you have to accept that the world can be this terrible or you have to say this is right to be able to emotionally process how bad it is. And I I think, yeah, if the job is going through not just the news to tell the news, but the news to tell what's wrong with the news, you're seeing so much of the worst of everything, especially because the job after that is to go and write about it and like, let, let me be funny about this horrible stuff that's happening. Yeah, no, it truly breaks you. I actually think that's why like John stepped away from the Daily Show. It was just like, I cannot watch another Glenn Beck clip and comment on it. I mean, it's just mainlining poison at that point. Yes. <laughs> Which uh, I think is why Tucker Carlson was so famous and revered because it was just like, you need to stop. If anyone hasn't seen that, go look up John Stewart, Tucker Carlson. Yeah. Did you guys see the Tucker Carlson, Hunter Biden email thing now? Yes. So fucking gross. The whole thing is so fucking gross. It is. I remember talking talking to someone years ago about Tucker Carlson and their defense was just, but it gives you the disclaimer that it's not news. And it's like, you put it on a news station. You're saying this is news. The disclaimer, it's the same warning about Q-tip saying, don't put it in your ears. Like, come on, we know what you're going to do with this. Yeah, this is actually something, well, first for anyone like listening to us who doesn't know what the thing is, when going through like Hunter Biden's hacked emails, they found an exchange between Tucker Carlson and Hunter Biden where Tucker is like, thank you so much for writing a college recommendation for my son Buckley. I appreciate it. Let's all go get dinner soon. And this was like five years back. But the point is, it's just like these guys are friends and they're like doing favors for each other. And then they will absolutely just like slam each other in the news with crazy conspiratorial stuff if it gets them the ratings they need. So that's gross. But to the other point of like it's separated from the news versus the opinion pieces, this is something that John actually talks about a lot is like what they do is it's news laundering, right? Which is like they will get your Tuckers and your Hannity's to just say some outrageous conspiracy theory. Then the next morning, on the actual news, they'll be like, you know, a lot of people are saying the thing that Tucker and Handy were saying. Like, that's how they just sweep it into the real news. Which is incredible. And this is something that can be done with kind of emerging fields too, where you are your own source because there aren't 
official publications on things. So you make your own publication. It's like, well, here's this article saying the thing I'm doing is legitimate. And it's very much fed into this news cycle now because you have so many sources you can quote and so much less regulation that you can cite basically yourself or your partner as the source for why the thing you're saying is legitimate, which is a terrifying prospect when the point of this is supposed to be the truth. But obviously we're going to get into that even more with the bad side. There is a, a good side <laughs> of news, theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> the level of access, the, the level of information that is out there, I feel like it's such a good thing in concept. It's just done so terribly most of the time. But I think that is why we have loved people like John Stewart, because this is so hard to ingest and he makes news so accessible. And there are so many that do that. This was when it started, which we went into the history, this was something for elites and then it became for the public and then it kind of became for whoever can grab the piece that they like the most. And those that are able to disseminate it is like, no, here's the information you need in the way it makes the most sense is great. It's fantastic that it exists in a way where we can get very important information. It's just the discerning it that's so hard. This is our first morning recording, by the way. We normally do these at night and I see Wen with his coffee smartly, which I forgot to do. Not just a hat rack, my friend. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get right into the history for this a little bit where news started because this originated as a practice of just questioning travelers, but this was considered a matter of priority. And evidence shows this existed in multiple cultures where it was understood this was part of the responsibility of the culture. Zulu, Mongolian, Polynesian, Southern Indigenous Americans, and important news would be repeated quickly and often, and it would be spread by word of mouth over a large area through multiple towns. And this was how it was done. Even after printing presses were used in Europe, the general public often received news orally from monks and travelers and town criers. And this was also based partially on because not many people could read. Yeah, it was all gossip based. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) It was 100% gossip. Someone traveling 800 miles on the Silk Road to be like, don't believe a word Becky says. She's a bitch. (laughs) She's a liar. We all know it. Especially when the places they're traveling from are not something that is known to the people that are receiving the news. Like you could easily describe Narnia and be like, oh, this is cool. This is just a thing that exists there. The world was such a mystery that the information that's received, some of this is important and useful. And some of it is, hey, you know, they got dragons over here. And that was what was spread as official news. Yeah, that's kind of fun. It's kind of a fun uh, freedom where you get to make up whatever the fuck you want. And some Mongolian trader is just like, holy shit, really? <laughs> dragons, man. <laughs> There's apparently this one guy, Win, who's had so much sex. He says he's irresistible <laughs> and he's good at it. It's just news now. It's just because they were so much better at preserving the news. If you go back and find some of the reports from Rome when they discovered new territories, the reports like from what was happening in Germany, they're describing these absolutely monstrous situations and these people that are almost mythical beasts. And it's just one guy who went there and came back and was like, just don't fuck with Germany. That we, nobody needs to go there. Even with all the technology in the world, we're still like, by the way, this place, they have weapons of mass destruction. I just right. want you guys to know that they're definitely there. Don't look into it too closely. Oh, we definitely should fuck with them. Yeah, go take the royal. <laughs> yeah, we, do, we didn't get any better at it. We just got faster. Yes. The first written news, this is maybe originated, at least of surviving records, in 8th century BCE China, because officials gathered reports, and this was compiled as the Spring and Autumn Annals, and these were available to a large public and dealt with common new themes, but was somewhere between news and history, because again, these aren't daily releases or anything. There's also going to be an aspect of government propaganda involved here. You're looking to maintain power with your news. During the Han Dynasty, beginning in 202 BCE, they had one of the most effective imperial surveillance and communication networks in the ancient world. Government produced news sheets called Dabao, meaning reports from the, you know, quote, official residences. And they were sent among court officials during the late Han Dynasty. Tradition China has kept up pretty effectively, I would say. Yeah, honestly, they have very much maintained the 
control of absolutely all news and release there. It's even after it's spread from the court officials to the public in like 713 to 14 AD, they had the bulletin of the court, which was published government news, and it was handwritten on silk and read by government officials out to the public. That's a real like a Floyd Mayweather type of move, just like having your news handwritten on silk for you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Look, the news is bad, but it feels great. (laughs) It feels amazing. It's dry clean only, but... So it was really interesting, though, how much of an official process this was, not just to write the news, but to release the news because of that. And that court created the Bureau of Official Reports to centralize distribution. So it wasn't until 1582 for the first reference of privately published news sheets in Beijing. But the early forums in other parts of the world were often public gathering places. You know, the Greek forums and the Roman baths. In England, eventually coffee houses served as really important sites for the spread of news, even after telecommunication was available. This is where we're just straight up on gossip at this point. Yeah, it really was. It was like, hey, I heard something that we're considering news. We're going to meet here and you're going to have the guy who knows supposedly the most about it sharing it. And there's like there's no way to check sources at this point either. Which is definitely just an argument between 60 guys who are all like, I know the most about it. I should be talking. (laughs) And it's ridiculous how like official this was all considered too. like you go back and share this information. It's like, oh, no, this was the news of the day and not just something that Jerry told me. And the coffee houses trace back through the Arab countries, not introduced until England until 16th century. So it's a bit later. But in the Muslim world, people gathered and shared news at mosques and other social places, but they had such a traveling culture that travelers on pilgrimages to Mecca stayed at caravanserais and roadside inns, and these served as hubs for trading news of the world. And fairs were often these massive events around religious festivals, so traders would arrive from all over. Doesn't sound so much fun, or like the idea that you could go to a place and get new information that was totally foreign to you, rather than like now wherever you go, everyone is on Twitter looking at the same hashtag or whatever. Like the world is so small in a way that there's a lot of benefits, but also just like kind of sucks as well. There's no like intrigue. There was like a lot of like mystery to be like, what's happening in your part of the world? There's a war. That's insane. (laughs) Tell me more about this. And there's heroes like, okay, well, we have a giant fire and everyone like it's just like oh that fire that must be a giant religious thing like no we just kind of get drunk around and like no they had this mighty fire in the middle of town (laughs) yes and now you're in Addis Ababa Ethiopia and everyone's like Pete Davidson's dating who That's a PR stunt. That's a PR stunt. I'm sorry. It's just not real. Yeah. One of the things I've had dealt with too is just my girlfriend complaining just because our jobs keep me more online that I have seen all of the memes first. Like she'll send me something and it's like, no, I've already seen that. And I've been told to stop and and just lie and pretend I haven't. But it's very much the same thing with the news too, where it's, it's like, yeah, who knows who has seen what it is breaking immediately and then shared. And then of course, obviously you're trying to write a joke about it as quickly as possible possible because you know it's going to be gone in 24 hours and no longer be relevant. Yes. Let me ask you as a man also in a relationship, when a meme that you've seen is is shared with you and then you say, I've already seen it, do you ever get the, why didn't you share it with me then? Oh God. Why is this a a, a one direction (laughs) flow of memes? Yeah, I have absolutely had that. Like, I would clearly enjoy this. I was like, I could not imagine how you would have enjoyed this. I was clearly way off here, but I did not think (laughs) I did not think this was going to go over well if I shared it. My argument is, I consume funny stuff, like, as I have to. I have to bring it in constantly because like I have to keep up with this going on. If I send you everything that I found amusing throughout the day, you would get so tired of it so fast. Yes, it would be a full-time job. I'd be some type of meme <laughs> processing plant. I'd be like one of those terrible Instagram accounts, but just for my wife if I sent her everything I found funny throughout a day. Yeah. <laughs> yes, in the least financially gainful way possible. 
when I love that you phrase that so professionally is like, look, it's my job to look at these memes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what they pay me for. They don't pay me. We don't get a lot for it, but it's still part of the work. <laughs> and so jumping back here to these travelers, they had these massive fairs to around these religious festivals and religious centers and traders would arrive from all over. And this would be the chance to share product, but also a chance to share information. And more official forms came in government edicts and those that delivered them because the first documented use of an organized courier service to spread written documents was in 2400 BCE Egypt. And pharaohs used them to spread decrees over the territory of the state, which is obviously huge. Those decrees, not great for my people. Yeah. Not usually good <laughs> decrees coming from the pharaoh. No, we did not do super well in Egypt. And like the reports of, of Jews in Egypt aren't really that well preserved, but we didn't love it. I would have liked some edit power on those decrees. Yeah. <laughs> And the other side of this was what Caesar did, where he publicized his heroic deeds in Gaul back when he was a general. Wait, can we also just for a second imagine the courier unrolling this thing and just basically looking at a page of emojis and having to disseminate that <laughs> to a whole crowd in the, in the hieroglyphics days? Like, look, the guy said eyeball under the sun next to a cat. So you guys know what the fuck is going on, right? You guys do know what's going on, right? Just somebody like faking their way through hieroglyphics reader sounds like a great bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things too where you see it is like, I get that this made sense, but I'm skeptical that we translated this right. Like, maybe they knew, but there's no way we know. Yeah, no, that's that's a completely <laughs> true. We're playing some weird game of charades over the course of 5,000 years. And right. We're, like, no, we, we're pretty sure we got this figured yeah. out. <laughs> the confidence of being like, we saw a rock with a bunch of things written on it, so I think we figure out all languages, guys. <laughs> one of the things you learn about Egyptian people is that they like worshipped cats, right? If someone were to go through Instagram 5,000 years from now, they'd be like Americans <laughs> worshipped cats. Oh, yeah. That is that is such a good point. I thought you're right. Absolutely. The exact same level of focus and adoringness. I do really wonder what is going to survive from us in the first place. And I know whatever they find will not be accurate, but I would love to know what it is that that they take from the culture from like the first generation to share everything they experience. So what's that going to look like to someone discovering it for the first time? And like this was what was important to them. The funniest thing I can imagine if it was just this podcast that survived. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. This is what all humans were into in the 2000s. They're like, there was apparently like someone named Batman that they loved like a lot, like a lot, like way too much. <laughs> well, do you ever think about that when you lo you look at something like, uh, like I don't want to get too philosophical, but like the Bible or whatever, and then you can see like how over the course of 300 years, like Star Wars could become a religion. It just absolutely could become a thing that people start taking seriously. And then a thousand years down the line, it's like people are worshiping Luke Skywalker or whatever. Yeah, especially when you look into some of the stuff like what they chose to edit out of the Bible. And I was reading a piece recently on God's wife and how they, you know, decided to push that aside. And it feels like it's the opposite now in that what else can I include? But it's still very much the same of, yeah, the things that we're creating, you can see how it would lead to like, no, this, this has to be something significant and meaningful. Why would they put so much into it if it didn't matter and wasn't real? Yeah, I have an important note, though. The reason they took out God's wife is because if you're making an arc and you start him off in a happy relationship, there's nowhere for him to go. Yeah. So you start him off as like an angry single guy and then he has a kid, he calms down a little bit and then they just kind of stopped writing the book before he found the person for him which right. I feel like they should complete the trilogy is what I'm saying. Yeah, when they had the third one, that's going to be the good stuff. Uh, <laughs> you can't give the most powerful omnipotent being a wife because then everyone's going to be like who really has the power here? <laughs> that was basically what the articles said. There was also the same thing 
when they cut out angels where people started saying they left a few of them, but they said, why does God need help? If we put in too many angels, people are going to think that he's not all powerful. So we got to take the angel parts of the book out. Hilarious. It just as angels on the cutting room floor. Someone came up, oh, fucking Nephi <laughs> was my best work. We're cutting Nephi? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. I just love it because when you read about angels too, it's just like, it's a thousand eyes surrounded by 5,000 wings and it screams like a lion. And then like, we're like, okay, how are we going to paint that? Blonde guys with wings. <laughs> <laughs> Those are your two choices. You got the blonde guy or just the fat baby. Wait, this is news to me. So angels are like hideously disfigured monster creatures in the actual Bible? Yeah, it's supposed to be like a whole thing of like, be not afraid is because angels, if you see them, are terrifying. Oh, because they're fucking terrifying? Hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> if you get a chance, the whole plot of like the Midnight Mass show on Netflix is based on the fact that if you actually saw an angel, you'd be like, that's a monster. What the fuck are you guys talking about? That's so funny. Be not afraid is not going to cut it if I see a thousand-eyed creature <laughs> with wings. Someone recently that did like an animated one and it was terrifying to begin with and then all the commentaries were like, here are the horrific aspects you left out. Like one, nowhere near enough eyes. And they're absolutely... <laughs> terrifying monsters. Uh, yeah. And so far, I wonder what the like impetus behind that was and that like just angels can see more like what does more eyes get for you? Yeah. Like you can't imagine omnipotence unless it's just like, well, he has to be able to see everything. So. And you can't do that without a fuck ton of eyes. Exactly. Yeah. I get that. But when you're like wanting people to like draw into your religion, you're just like, we can't paint that that's going to scare them away what if we just made it a baby end of list yeah <laughs> this is so like early show business because essentially the note there is like i like what you're doing what if they're hotter <laughs> <laughs> I like, too, that we put this down as angels and then we're like, OK, but God, he made us just like him. We're the goal here. And the angels are these horrible, disfigured guys. But God definitely looks like us, not them. Which kind of makes you be like, OK, Satan had a point. Yeah. <laughs> they look like you. Why the fuck do I look like this? Yeah. <laughs> Why am I pasty and out of shape? Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, Bible also not the most reliable news source, but still circulated very much like it is. We've got so much more, but I, so I want to skip ahead a little bit of some of the histories we don't have to cover. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All of this. Yeah, for anyone listening, by the way, you guys do a lot of work on this. This is like a deep dive. Oh, yeah. We try and get as much as we can. I always like finding the first example of, of anything we can. The amount of times that we started in like pre-recorded history Mesopotamia is most of our episodes. Love it. Every single time I look for Mesopotamia and see if I can find something that happened there first. But let's skip ahead a little bit. We've got medieval England and they had the parliamentary declarations were delivered to the sheriffs, which is obviously not the role of sheriffs. We know today this was the sheriff of Nottingham kind of role where it's like they're a relatively less powered figure, but they control a house and a bit of land and they're dicks about it. And they were delivered to the sheriffs for public display and reading at the market. Being dicks about a little bit of power sounds like modern day sheriffs to me. Yeah, no, that yeah. <laughs> was honestly, that, that part kept up. And I mean, there were different cultures all over in Vietnamese culture, the Kasi people in India, Meskwaki and, and Winnebago, American indigenous people. It was, again, they had a, a culture around this, this information. Uh, the Zulu kingdom used runners to quickly spread news. In West Africa by uh, Griot, it was done. And the Griot were essentially responsible for keeping an oral history 
of their tribe or village and to entertain with stories and poems, songs and dances. So this was a position of esteem and respect to be the one sharing this news and so much so that they would be advisors to royalty. That'd be so brutal to be in a situation where I was responsible for passing down dances. There's no way I'm going to get this just right, but here we go. I'm going to give you a rough idea. Yeah, I've been tasked with this, but I'm telling you, I'm not the guy for this job. I love the idea of the Zulu kingdom using runners to spread news because I think we should definitely add a running component to all journalism schools. Yes. To really separate the wheat from the chaff, you know? This was something that was done for so long. In the Middle Ages, the elites would would use runners and these were people that were trained for this. They would run 33 kilometers a day and could take two months or longer to reach again. This was often the Hanseatic League. This was a commercial and defensive confederation of merchant guilds and market towns. And this was the equivalent of your like internet speed at that point. Like whoever had the fastest runners was the quickest communicator. It was, yeah. This was the fastest you could get. And it was over this huge distance. It was across from Germany to the Netherlands, Poland, Russia, Sweden, Latvia, and Estonia. And this league was massive. And yeah, obviously it was only the very rich that would be able to do this, but they would have their runners deliver the news. And like two months later, it would get there. And then this guy would have to run back with the response. And this was a job that I'm sure did not pay that well. Well, you know, I can tell you this from experience because I lasted 10 days as a valet, Parker. And the second I get out of eye shot, I'm done running. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm running as long as you can see me. And then it's a brisk walk. Yeah. <laughs> that honestly, I wonder if it was like so much shorter. And they're like, no, this is just how long it takes, guys. This is 33 kilometers a day. <laughs> yeah. Well, and locally, they also had those that were specified to get the announcements in 13th century Florence. Criers were known as banditori. And they would arrive regularly in the market, announce political news, they'd call together public meetings called the populist arms. And laws were actually established to govern their appointment, conduct, and salary, including stipulations of how many times a banditoro was to repeat a proclamation, which was 40, and where they were to read them. And different declarations had other protocols, like announcements regarding the plague were also be read at the city gates. And the proclamations all used a standard format. So imagine every news article you read started with the worshipful and most esteemed gentlemen of the eight of ward and, and the security of the city of Florence make it known, notify, and expressly command to whosoever of whatever status, rank, quality, and condition. And then they read the news. As someone who lives in New York City, the tradition of Italians loudly complaining about news <laughs> is very much still alive and intact. Yeah, this one has lasted for at least 700 years. Fucking de Blasio. Yeah. <laughs> we just lost one of our loudest, most Italian newsmen, actually, yesterday. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's a big loss for the community. What was interesting, too, at this time was the criers of Banditoro could also be paid to include advertising along with their news, which was just insane that you're yelling this decree of plague. And then afterwards, it's like, and here's a great place to get a sandwich. <laughs> A better way to buy stamps. <laughs> but news was always tied to the communication network needed to disseminate it. So political, religious, and commercial powers have typically controlled, expanded, and monitored the communication channels through which news could be spread. So postal services were closely linked with the maintenance of political power. The royal road across the Assyrian Empire served as a key source of their power. The uh, Roman Empire maintained a huge network of roads, the Cursus Publicus, just for the same reason. It was just for news. Then there was a shift with the invention of the printing press. At this point, it became 
obviously more possible to print this faster and get it out. And it led to this massive shift in the form news took because it was originally purely factual and precise economic reporting. News at this point was largely, if it was going to be printed or shared, it was for the rich to figure out how to make more money. You had a piece of information that this is what's going on in this country. You figure out how this is going to impact your sales or your business, whatever you need to do to try and make more money from whatever horrible thing just happened. So they became CNBC immediately. Immediately, like as soon as it started. And at this point too, with the access to the printing, news was no longer disseminated by the state, even though they held massive control over what was allowed to be printed. So like the first formalized newspaper appeared in Germany in the early 1600s. And it was this new format that matched together numerous unrelated and perhaps unreliable reports from far off locales. And had the first ever family circus in it. Yeah. Still wasn't fun. <laughs> that was when it started. <laughs> well, it was this new and jarring experience for readers. And it led to this new variety of styles from single story tales to compilations, overviews, and personal impersonal types of news analysis before this was carefully crafted by the government to get their message across. And now you have differing opinions, which is great, but not necessarily well-informed opinions. I'm seeing a lot of roots. Yeah, so much is so consistent. And by 1530, even before the new paper existed, England had created a licensing system for the press and banned what they called seditious opinions. And there was also a licensing act which restricted publications to approved presses only, like the London Gazette prominently printed the phrase published by authority on all their papers. News that's approved by the king is always trustworthy. Yeah. <laughs> so you obviously had your other underground papers, but you had risk to be releasing any of this information that wasn't officially approved. And obviously we see all of this in all of the religious arguments and all of the doctrines and released by the Protestants and Catholics and then the war going on here. They obviously wanted to disseminate the information, but just owning this piece of paper could be dangerous to you. I know what you guys are talking about because everything I've read said the king is a really great guy. Yeah. <laughs> I did some shows in Singapore. Oh, how was that? It was actually kind of amazing, but Singapore is like, it's a straight up dictatorship, you know? And it's like, there's no crime there and it's spotlessly clean because the penalty for everything is like, you get publicly beaten or literally death. Like when you're in the airport, like there's all these signs. It's like, if you have drugs anywhere on you, it's the death penalty. We're not fucking around. So make sure there's no drugs in your suitcase. And it's like, I smoke pot sometimes, but like, it wouldn't be in my suitcase, but like I double and triple and quadruple checked. Did I accidentally pack drugs? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Did I weirdly decide to, but, you know, we're taking a cab from the airport to our hotel and the cab driver drive by the like prime minister's house or whatever. And just like, oh, we love our prime minister. She's just so humble. She's so <laughs> humble and just the best. And it's like, oh, that's right. We're in a dictatorship. <laughs> Nowhere in the world do you get in a cab and the cab driver's like, we love our leadership. They're the best. Yeah. That is insane. And yeah, of course, it's like, you're not going to risk it. Why would you complain about this? Exactly. You're just going to be like, these guys are the best. We love them. I'm so bad at packing for a vacation. I'd get to the airport and realize I have a suitcase full of bubble gum and drugs. Yes. <laughs> to Singapore. Well, honey, I've killed us. My apologies. <laughs> I, I get the checking. I hate the logic my brain does where it's someone who goes like, there's a chance you accidentally packed a sword. Yes. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know where it came from, but let's open the bag just in case. I was okay. Why? I, then uh, This is weird. Sorry. I know I'm derailing us, but a couple months ago, I was in the Dominican Republic and they sell kind of like touristy, like machetes, like machetes that like say Dominican Republic. And some guy tried to get on the plane with three loose machetes <laughs> in a plastic bag. And the person looked at him like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, are you crazy? You have to check these. 
that's truly what they said, but he'd already checked his bag, so he just had to leave the three machetes he tried to bring onto the flight. They're decorative machetes. <laughs> they can't cut anybody. Yeah, you can't take over a plane with a decorative <laughs> machete. I'm just imagining, like, how mad I get when I have to, like, chug a bottle of water. Like, imagine, like, angrily having to shove three machetes into a trash can <laughs> in line of security. I actually, I do have one of those from when my father went to Puerto Rico. I have a, a Puerto Rican machete that he got back. So that's what you do, guys. You go and buy the machete. So I want to skip a bit ahead to news as a business because that brings us more into our issues of today. It grew very quickly in America, the 1792 Postal Service Act. Papers often got their stories from other papers. So this act allowed free postage to newspapers wishing to exchange copies. And this led to a growing news network that thrived during the colonization of the West. By 1880, San Francisco rivaled New York in number of different papers and in printed copies per capita. Also, the access to high-speed presses, cheap wood-based newsprint also meant papers could be created cheaper and faster. And in Europe, the rapid expansion of elementary education meant a huge increase of potential readers. So in the 1860s and 70s, the number of papers in Europe was holding at about 6,000. And by 1900, it had doubled to 12,000. So huge increase. Um, and then the invention of the telegraph led to news spreading quicker and easier and a centralization of the network around wire services. So Charles Louis Havas founded Bureau Havas, which later became Agence France Presse in France. And he used the government's optical telegraph, which is, you know, basically using a semaphore system. I just let that roll by like I knew what the fuck that meant, but I have no idea okay. what the hell that meant. What is a semaphore system? So basically you have guys with flags, so to communicate from a distance to signal, or you have essentially little figures that you can shape in, in certain ways so you can see over a different distance to convey signals. The same thing that they use on boats to communicate. Waving the flag this way means something, waving it the other way means something else. Gotcha. So he was super committed to getting this distanced news in because along with that, getting he used homing pigeons for London and Brussels. And then when the electric telegraph became available, he immediately adopted that. His protege, Paul Router, Reuters, Reuters. There we go. <laughs> that became more and more like, it made more and more sense what that name was the more you said it. I was like, got it. Reuter, Router, Reuter. <laughs> I do this every time saying it with the actual until <laughs> Paul Reuter began collecting news from Germany and France in 1849. 1851, he moved to London and established the Reuters news agency, specializing in news from the continent. And the big thing here was Reuters won the right to transmit stock exchange prices between Paris and London just before insulated telegraph lines crossed the English Channel. Oh, baby, here's where the money comes in. Yeah. It was huge. And the cost to print this, people were so needed this information, if you were rich, you could get so rich from this, that for entrepreneurs sharing information on the London and New York Stock Exchange, plus the Chicago and Liverpool commodity exchanges, I became a major focus. This would be printed at a cost of 5 to $10 in gold, about $150 to $300 today per word. And this was this huge win. <laughs> to have this. I'm going to give you another quick aside here because we just wrote an episode that's not coming out for a couple months, but it's about the stock market. So there is like a bunch of trades happen between New York City and Chicago, really a server farm in Jersey in Chicago. So there's a fiber optic cable that connects this Jersey server farm to the Chicago exchange, but it goes through the Appalachian Mountains, right? So it's like this curvy fiber optic cable that goes all the way from New York to Chicago. So this awful company called Citadel, they paid to have a fiber optic cable go direct from this place to Chicago, just boring through mountains. They paid $300 million to do it. And it gives them a 
two second advantage over the other fiber optic cable. And in that 0.2 seconds, because computers can process information in microseconds, then they get to guarantee themselves making money on every trade because they can see this is worth one cent more at this moment than it will be when you get the information in 0.2 seconds. So we'll go ahead and process these trades and they can only process positive trades in their favor. And they paid $300 million just to drop this fiber optic cable. That is insane. It's truly insane. Yeah. But it just reminds me of this, of like, you're talking stock prices, the faster you can move it, the faster you can make moves versus your competitors and basically guarantee making money because you're basically trading in the future. That was exactly what it was. Yeah. Especially because for a lot of people, I'm sure it's just like, I'm going to buy this stock right now. You don't have any idea that that company's closed. It's gone now. (laughs) And no, you're absolutely right. And I mean, the level of discussion around the stock market is so varied. And with the understanding of It's like, no, this is for most people, wild gambling. And for a select few, this is absolute control where they are just shifting your gambling. (laughs) They they have the access to the information to make it whatever they need it to be. And having that data first is so huge, though I had no idea about that. Like a system based on 0.2 seconds feels like a terrible system to base the economy on. (laughs) Yes, yes, 100%. (laughs) Like if you pitch that idea, I feel like I would say, no, this is a terrible idea that nobody should have access to that kind of power over that distance of time. So this might have been over hours or days, but it, it was still the same thing. And, and this is how these news organizations gained power because people were going to pay to have this information. And of course, you got the information first as well, which meant you could invest. And at this point, Havas, Reuters and Wolf, who was the founder of a major German news network, had divided up the world into three global markets with more or less exclusive distribution rights. And it was primarily based on the originating countries' territories. Reuters, for example, and the Australian National News Service agreed to only share information with each other. And this made it pretty much impossible for any small papers networks to break in as any meaningful source would have been an exclusive contract with one of the big three. So this only really only shift when the BBC began broadcasting radio news in 1922, dependent entirely by law on the British news agencies. So early radio was still the same system, but it even marketed itself as news by and for social elites. It hired only broadcasters who spoke with upper class accents. <laughs> like this was part of their rule and foundation. And again, complete government control. Today in South London, <laughs> the tea shops are like, yeah. Because of this, in 1926, when they had the general strike, which meant newspapers were closed, the BBC became far more significant as radio became the only source of news. But also this was a strike for coal workers' rights against the government. And it's all government controlled. So the BBC took this unambiguously pro-government stance. And who did they side with? I yeah. <laughs> so you immediately have this corruption in the news source from what is supposed to be this new stable network. But at the same time, because it's the only network, it puts it immediately into prominence. And in the same year in America, RCA established NBC, CBS found it soon after. And this started out with an incredibly significant agreement that radio broadcasters in the U.S. would only share news from the press radio bureau and have no advertising. This would have changed news significantly. And this fell apart soon after and radio stations began reporting their own news, which was great, but they were now reliant, one, on their own sources and reliant on advertising to stay afloat, which immediately put it into a source of competition, not just for speed and not just for audience. But for how much like dish soap you could sell. Right. And it just became a commercial endeavor. You needed listeners for a completely different reason. But at the same time, in England, American, as in England, American news radio avoided what they called controversial topics. And these were norms established by the National Association of Broadcasters. So news was now being independently released, but at the least self-censored and dependent on advertising. And it grew 
grew rapidly from 130 stations in 1920 to thousands in the 1930s. And World War II meant an opportunity to expand radio. This is the same ratio as the spread of podcasts. It, yeah. <laughs> this is, yeah, when the pandemic hit, this was essentially the growth that Wen and I both also jumped in on. But with World War II, this was this huge opportunity for radio to expand. And the BBC reported on the Allied invasion of Normandy at 8 a.m. the morning it took place and included a clip from German radio coverage of the same event. Radio Luxembourg, a high power station on the continent, was seized by Germany during the war and then by the U.S. towards the end, who created a fake news programs appearing as though it was still controlled and released by Germany to release their propaganda about the current state of Germany in the war. Oh, they are beating us. They are beating us in our tiny German penises. <laughs> this is a real news broadcast and we are losing. <laughs> And well, Japan also had their interest because they created Zero Hour, which was a news program that existed entirely to make GIs feel homesick. It was just a program talking about uh, all the stuff you loved back in America, how your wife is probably cheating on you back at home. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was just constant and blasted to American GIs. Coney Island hot dogs, half price. <laughs> but if you're going to destroy morale, I mean, that is a creative way to do it. This just in, your kid is calling another man dad <laughs> based on a bunch of japanese ideas of what americans probably like <laughs> everything's cheeseburger based everything's yes. just cheeseburger based well the next big shift after this was by the 1960s tv news became the public's primary news source but they were run by the same networks was on radio and edward r murrow who had already got his reputation as a radio war reporter in london switched to tv news with cbs and became iconic as a newsman later becoming the director of the united states information agency and this added further legitimacy to television news, but it also grew with more networks. So in 1980, Ted Turner created CNN, Cable News Network, and started the era of 24-hour satellite news broadcasting. In 1991, BBC did the same with World Service Television, and then Rupert Murdoch, Australian News Corporation, created Fox News. This was done at the same time as the first Gulf War, which led to embedded reporters giving non-stop media coverage. CNN prepared at any time to shift its total attention to any crisis news, which became their specialty. And we should just touch for a second how insane the concept of a neutral embedded reporter is <laughs> like you are literally with a platoon who you rely on to keep you alive and then you have to objectively report on what they're doing it's just on its face that's fucking insanity <laughs> that is such a good point that i hadn't thought because i've never considered them to be a neutral party but also i've never considered that they're reporters they're supposed to be a neutral party they're supposed to be reporting on this fairly and equally and, and discussing what's happening but how can you when you're with the, just the part <laughs> of a platoon basically yeah a lot of consent man manufacturing, not a lot of like unbiased reporting. Right. <laughs> well, and due to, to this coverage, the CNN prepared at any time to shift its total attention to any crisis news, which became their specialty, which meant they needed crisis news. They wanted whatever horrible thing was happening. They wanted that information as fast as they could get it. And they wanted to share it with you in the most disturbing way possible. And as the internet became available to more people with Netscape in 1994, news websites were at first more of an archive of print publications, but an early online paper reported in the 1994 California earthquake, one of the first big stories reported online in real time. 1995, the Oklahoma City bombing took place and people went online to news groups and chat rooms to discuss and share information. And this was a very early example of that, which didn't really exist at the time where news became something that was partially informed by the people. I suppose this was how it existed originally, was only shared by the people, but it had become more official and then gotten back to that system. The Oklahoma City Daily posted news to its site within hours of it happening, and two of the only news sites capable of hosting images, Time Magazine in San Jose, Mercury News posted photos of the scene. And soon after this, the internet became a central hub, as nothing else could compete with the volume of news available there. But speed of release
release and less if any publication standards meant the reliability dropped significantly with accessibility. And it also led to access of global news without context, meaning information overload was a real issue and it was dubbed as a phenomenon where global reality increasingly absorbs the individual involved and even occasionally overwhelms him. And when you're used to, hey, here's your local news and it's something funny with like a duck that's friends with a dog to suddenly hear is everything horrible happening in the entire world. That is not something people were prepared or knew how to process. Yeah, there was some tweet going around, I remember, maybe like not that long ago, a couple weeks ago that I saw that was like, we're not even supposed to know this many people are alive, let alone what they're thinking. (laughs) Yeah, I actually read the report that you're only supposed to know 200 people. (laughs) Your community was never supposed to ever be bigger than 200 people. And now you keep up with thousands and thousands with social media living in cities and everyone else's thoughts and opinions are just like beamed directly into your face like right before you go to sleep at night and then immediately as you wake up right no that's that's exactly what i'm looking at twitter and seeing the dumbest takes i've ever seen i mean another thing like everyone like is like so obsessed with like celebrities and everything and like you know you get body dysmorphia you start judging yourself seeing a hot person was supposed to be a rarity (laughs) you were supposed to see one of those in your fucking life and like your whole community would make a statue of them and like that's it and now we have to see like that one person all the time always you ever watch like a movie from the 50s or the 60s and like a man takes off his shirt and he's just got a regular man body and you're like i I couldn't even imagine such a thing and unless it's like a seth rogan comedy if it's a drama of any type everyone is in perfect shape oh it's so depressing like how can i even process that i feel like you have two options which is either two become overwhelmed both by the physical and the emotional side of this or just to shut down is like I'm not taking any of this in I know this is happening but it's just going in and out I can't take any more information in yeah I won't argue with strangers on Twitter I can't elevate your opinion to the point of me caring about it if I don't know you I just don't know anything about your life you might be a full-on insane person and here I am like arguing policy with you it's just not worth it I've taken the same approach and it's hard because you see someone say something really hateful or ignorant and you want to respond because it's upsetting and you're like, what What could I possibly say that is going to change the opinion of someone whose starting point is birds or spies for the government? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to make an impact here. At least not with this Robin outside my window, I'm not. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's that old expression, never argue with an idiot, they'll bring you down to their level and then beat you with experience. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no one's ever won an online argument. Right. You know? Yeah. The best you could ever hope for is when those two people do that self-congratulatory thing where they're just like, wow wow, we actually had a civilized discussion on the internet. More people should be like this. And it's just like, go fuck yourself. (laughs) Yeah, fuck off. Yeah, there's that. Or that it just devolves. You can't even follow it because it just turns into both people quote tweeting each other to try to dunk on each other. And now this is unfollowable as well. I've This is just like an out of context response to something. It's absolutely insane how big it gets. And I've taken to, if someone responds to me and says something I don't like, I just block. It's so easy. It's immediately, they can't see anything else I've written. And I know that people say like, oh, that makes them feel like they won. I don't care. They're gone from my life entirely. <laughs> I never have to see them again. Yeah, congrats. We're all winning here. You get to feel like you won. I get to never have to deal with you again. We're all winners here. Right. <laughs> and it was one of those things too, where it's like, oh, okay, I'm never going to engage. I've got a new process here. Sometimes they'll talk with themselves or some or argue with someone else. It's like, I'm done. Especially because I'm rarely talking about this massively serious information. It's a joke. Like the longest string of replies I had that were arguing were when they had that 
deodorant or soap commercial about toxic masculinity. And I made some pretty random comment about it. And it got hundreds of replies from really toxic men. <laughs> like this was just the issue we were discussing. And I know they're arguing back and forth under it. And it was very quickly it's like, oh, no, this doesn't involve me. It's the thing I said, but it has nothing to do with me. I love that you discovered this block thing. Like it's the Kobayashi Maru where you're just like, I figured out a way to beat this horrible system we're in. <laughs> I beat the system. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, but I know people who said like, "Oh, I don't want them to feel that way," or I just mute them. It's like, no, I've got thousands of people blocked. It is fantastic. It is so easy to do, and it instantly puts the problem out of my head. And I feel like we're already getting into it. But Robbie, for you, was the where it went wrong with news. What was the big point? Where did this start? I would say somewhere in 2300 BC on the Silk Road, yeah. probably. <laughs> I don't know if we've ever done it right, but obviously the internet has turbocharged everything and made it so much worse. But the groundwork for all of that, I think, comes from the 24-hour news networks, which is suddenly you had 24 hours a day of news to fill rather than curating the most important stuff of the day through the filter of the nightly news of like, we've taken the most important 44 minutes worth of news for the day. We're not reacting to it in the second. This is like the most important stuff and we've disseminated it for you rather than like, we have all day, we just need to fill time. We'll figure it out. You know, I remember during like the Malaysia missing plane, which is like a CNN at their absolute worst and best simultaneously because this is what they fucking live for. Yeah. <laughs> they had some expert on and they're asking him like, you know, what could have happened to the plane? And he gives like two conceivable possibilities and they're like, anything else? And he's like, nothing else I could really say with authority. We just don't know. And then the anchor, whoever it was, was like, well, speculate for us. <laughs> right. They're literally asking an expert to just make shit up because they have time to fill. And then he's like, fuck, I guess I'll just start speculating. So he just starts spitballing, essentially making up shit that could have happened. Like he's writing some type of fun fantasy story. And then that becomes the news. And you start talking about this guy's speculation. And it's nothing. It's at that point, it's just two idiots having a conversation about nothing, but they have no choice because they got time to fill. But the real problem obviously is that these things are private cable companies that are profit centers. And when you're going for profit, you have to appeal to people. And what you realize is like, you know, straight facts and information doesn't appeal to people. As much as we all say we deserve a better news corp with, with more nuanced takes, like those things exist, but I'm not reading them. You're not reading them. No one is, right? Like, sure, I, I you know, here and there you go, you pick out an article you need, but for the most part, people are ingesting this like spoon fed outrage that's being sold to them because that's the thing that's hard to click away from. And you look at some than like a Fox News. Fox News, by the way, to me, they're the constant target, but they're truly not the worst. All three of them are awful. MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, they're all poison. They're just kind of a different flavor of poison. But if you look at the screen, you look at the screen on Fox News and it's like, oh, this is a screen built for people at home in their 60s. Yeah. Like the font is bigger than the other two. The graphics are just kind of like cool enough looking, but not totally current. But there's always, there's a spinning ball in the bottom right with like the Fox logo. Then there's two separate tickers. There is a countdown clock for something. Maybe it used to be COVID deaths. Now it's the stock market or whatever. But it's like, there's just movement and motion all over. So you can just kind of zone out. It's the same kind of thing you do when you leave the TV on for your dog. Yes. Where, 
It's just, let's get some colors in there. Let's get some excitement. And we're not really going to worry about the actual content behind it. Yes. Which is why Gutfeld is the number one show in late night because it comes on after Tucker and no one changes the, the, it's just constantly on Fox news in the background. So Gutfeld is truly the number one show in late night, by the way, which is horrifying (laughs) both as a concept of this is what's being propagated. And also as a comedy writer who's like, this is bad. (laughs) This is really bad writing. And I'm not just saying that because they turned down my package. (laughs) I'm legitimately not a fan of the show. You'll get them next time. (laughs) But I think you're very right that this 24-hour news cycle, because it is so much of a, we need the content, we need the most sensational content because with everyone now having 24-hour news, we have to be the one that gets them. And I know this isn't a new take, but I think one of the big issues too is that some networks have still remained the both-sidism, even when they don't have that because one side is factual and one isn't. They're still getting an expert on one side and some dude with an opinion on the other and they're presented as equivalent. Yes. So this happens all the time. Like I think the biggest example of this that you'd see is with climate change, right? Where you have 97% of scientists in agreement in one direction and outliers on the other. And then you bring one from each thing. And as you're just someone watching, you say, oh, this is a 50-50 argument between scientists. Like, no, if it's a fact, you should have it demonstrated. You should have 97 panelists on one side and three on the other. Go ahead and actually do it that way if you want to do both sides. Or recognize when something is considered enough to be a fact, you can just represent the fact. But before, impartiality was incredibly important in news when this was developing. But we've reached a side where there is so much information being disseminated and so much around it that is fictionalized. It's become far more important to make sure you have the fact. Because if something is true, it's not biased just because people disagree. That is the fact. And I think that's it. People instead focusing on non-bias between two sides rather than non-bias between fact and not fact. And that is such a huge issue. Two of my big things is one, I mean, Fox News itself, uh, one of the reasons it was established and quoted as being established is so that what happened to Nixon would not happen to another Republican ever again. (laughs) That was one of Rupert Murdoch's like pitches when he like was trying to get funding for Fox News. He said, we'd never want something to happen. Like what happened with Nixon where public opinion was completely swayed by all these other networks. We want somebody who will go to bat for our guys. Public opinion being fact, by by the way, the public opinion of information or fact. Right. And then the other thing was the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine in 1987. And the Fairness Doctrine pretty much said if you have a controversial topic, you have to fairly and accurately portray both arguments on their merit. And you cannot like have it swayed one way or the other. And so that was repealed in 1987, which means people could pretty much be like, hey, let's just put up our scientists or our expert versus whoever we could get off off the street to show how easily defeated their argument could possibly be. Reagan repealed everything. Reagan fully broke the country yes. in so many ways. And that was one of the ways. Yeah. Say what you want about George W. and, and Trump. But yeah, Reagan is really the one who got the ball rolling on, on everything. Well, worse than all of those guys, including Trump by head and shoulders, worse than all of them in that he was effective. Whereas like if Trump was like left to do what he wanted to to do, he, he would have been worse, but he just couldn't make any of it really happen except for stacking the court. And that was really McConnell more than him. But, you know, this is something the right does really well when it comes to news is that they cry liberalism. They cry that this is a liberal talking point, that the New York Times is a, is a far left propaganda paper. And then when you really break down the New York Times, they're like, no, this is a right of center, like corporate machine that drums us into wars regularly. You know, like there's nothing 
nothing about the New York Times. It's some type of liberal paper, except that they're like, you know, gay people are good or whatever, which is kind of like, sure, there's that and good for them on that. But everything else is like hovering up for the man and corporations, essentially, and drumming us into war. But they do that because they get called liberal so much that they're scared of being portrayed that way. So they just keep shifting further and further right. And the Overton window keeps shifting further and further right. Right. It's like a sports star that keeps complaining that he never gets any foul calls. And if he says it in every interview, I don't get any foul calls. Well, then the ref is going to be like, well, I'm not going to be the person who's going to get accused of bias. So I'm actually going to give way more calls in this person's favor just to show that there is no favoritism going on, which is exactly why they complained in the first place. Exactly. Which is incredible that they keep falling for this because when you go the other way and talk about propaganda of the right or the fictionalization, they instead double down on it. There's no backing off. It's like, yeah, I said it. And they say it with pride. And instead of catering more to the audience that would agree with them, a lot of these powerful papers, yeah, have just shifted farther and farther right. And it's ridiculous to read the New York Times and think anyone would consider this a left paper. It's not at all. And you can see, as, as you said, that it's corporate power. That this is their interest. It's self-interest. And one of the big current issues is that if you look at the major papers. Far more of the ones that would be left-leaning, or at least online, are behind a paywall. There are very few powerful right-wing publications that require that paywall. The biggest conspiracy sites have no paywall. So the information our people are getting, are able to get for free, are the ones that have the most extreme opinions and the least factual. And this limits access significantly. There are plenty of people who cannot afford to get the real news. So we're getting the news from the source they can that's telling them about fictional evils. And I get it. I believe in paying for news. But when the other side is doing this so successfully, there has to be a a new system implemented because this is leading to so many people only having access to one side that is fictionalizing what they're telling them. Not only that, but if you have one channel that you always watch and then you have a Facebook feed and a Twitter feed curated to only the voices you want to hear, you're definitely going to become more and more insular in your diet than if we just had a basic, here it is, that's the day. And something that I was thankfully taught young enough was how to research. And this is such a big thing that plenty of people you see now with the debate around Corona, people said, I did my own research. And it was like, well, no, you Googled something. (laughs) You didn't look into anything. And a big part of doing real research is not getting the information, but checking your source. And this was something that when you learn, it's like, oh, cool. If I'm going to claim anything is true, I need to confirm why, not just that it is believable, why it's believable. And without that information, anything you hear is just something you can ingest and take as, oh, this must be a fact now. And I think that's a huge problem into how people are processing news. Which is why attacks on academia and expertise are so potent. They're so viable because it's just like you break people's trust in what we know to be fact and then you get to create new facts. Yeah. I got to say one of the greatest like coups as far as like words are concerned is making elites go from like rich people in like the eye of what elites mean to people who know things. Yeah. I'm just like, what a great... Reclamation if you want to just completely discredit people who know things. Because you have it being said by people who are like hundred millionaires and like these elites, and it was like, you mean that professor who's making 40000 a year? That elite? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that is, I mean, there's no way we can cover everything that's wrong with the news, but <laughs> we've got the history, we've got the little bit of good it's done, and we definitely had to where it went wrong in the 24-hour news cycle, which brings us to In Their Defense, where we have to defend all of this. What do you guys have? <laughs> I guess if I had to play the other side, it's like news and information, it, it has to be disseminated, and there is, even in a 24-hour news cycle, there's only so much time in the day, and in the same as New York Times, there's only so much place 
price you can print. So just by that, there's the bias of picking and choosing what is important anyway. So there's no way to do news in an unbiased way because right off the bat, you have to choose what you're going to talk about. So there's already a bias in that. And the next thing is because of repeal, whatever act it was that said like news had to be ad free, like because that's gone now, they have no choice but to make a profit. These people have to make a living. So a lot of them like Jeff Zucker and whatever, they're making too much of a living. But the point is like they have to make money. They have to be profitable and they're fighting in a free market. They're in an open market and they're not going to be profitable if they're just like, here's just a bare distillation of the facts. Right. And I know, I think it's a great point. That would be fantastic to have that as a main source. But if someone creates that and nobody watches it, it's not doing any good anyway. When, what do you have in their defense? Yeah, I'm going to say there was a time in my life before I started keeping up with the news where I was just like pretty low anxiety <laughs> and I'd go about my days. I would just like enjoy myself. I had to learn about sports in order to like be able to talk to anyone at any time if like there was an awkward lull. But now I could be mad whenever I want. Now I could be anxious whenever I want. I could start an argument with any person in the world whenever I want and like have that argument last hours. Whereas before we just have a pleasant plane ride. And like because of that, because of all these things, I'm able to like have a terrible Thanksgiving, a terrible Christmas. It's going to always work out that I can like now argue with my granddad for three hours uh, in the <laughs> one day that I get to see him every three or four months. And isn't that a blessing? Isn't that a blessing? Whereas before we just had to catch up on like what each other's actual lives were. And now we could talk about the Rittenhouse verdict over Christmas. What a great time to be alive for me in particular. Thank you, 24 hour news. Thank you. <laughs> you know what? Here's one more defense of them because what you're saying is that obviously they create a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression, but then they're kind enough to show advertisements for anxiety and depression drugs. <laughs> you know? I swear to God, that was the argument I was just about to make. Oh. <laughs> All right. I've got to go with a brand new one. That Yes, we, we've got a, a pharmaceutical industry dependent on this advertising. So what do I have other than that? Honestly, I pretty much nothing. But what I'm instead going to go with then is I know the stress of just receiving responding to the news that part of our job involves taking in this information and processing it and trying to get it out there as quickly as possible in a funny way. That is essentially what the job is and it is exhausting and stressful and I at least get to do the funny way part. If I had to put it out there in just general shit yeah I'm gonna throw out whatever I have <laughs> I'm gonna just put it out there and see what sticks to the wall and yeah when it's controlled by a massive corporation that makes money from it instead what else are you gonna do? It is an absolutely terrible system, but it is a system that was built in this, and, and there doesn't seem to be some great alternative unless you completely rebuild that, uh, which I think, honestly, that the best chance of that is in comedy news, is in what you're doing and a chance to present this to people in a way where it's more digestible and it's entertaining, but at least for the very clever ones like John Stewart and John Oliver, you're having a chance here to start a more reasonable discussion on it because you're breaking something down in a way where people are actually getting true information behind it in a way that they can process it and hopefully go somewhere with it. I think you're calling me a hero yeah. and you're right. You're right. No, I mean, I think at least partially for me, why all of the packets I work hardest on and send out are to these programs. It's like, yeah, TV writing in general would be great, but the interest in the ones that are doing comedy news, I think are the most interesting, I think are doing so much good with comedy. So it is a good thing despite an incredibly corrupt path to get there. But I mean, I think that about 
wraps it up. When, when do you think? I think we did pretty good. Yeah. Robbie Slowick, thank you so much for coming on today. It was an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Guys, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps out so much. We also have a Patreon down in the show notes. It helps us keep this show running. We're going to be back next week. We hope you'll join us then. When? I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.